Welcome to the Go and Teach Bible Study program presented by the Monta Vista Church of Christ in Phoenix, Arizona. We want to thank you for joining us today as we examine the truth of God's Word and the answers it holds to life's most important questions. If you have questions about this lesson or would like to study further, please contact us at montavistacoc.com. Now let's open our Bibles and study God's Word together. Thanks for tuning in to the Go and Teach radio program. My name is Ryan Goodwin. I preach for the Monte Vista Church of Christ here in Phoenix, Arizona. Well, it's kind of hard to avoid this time of year, but it is the Christmas season. So I have to ask, what do you want for Christmas? What do your kids want for Christmas? What are you getting your loved ones for Christmas? What are you getting your boss for Christmas? You ever have it happen where you open a gift on or around Christmas time and it's just not exactly what you thought it would be? It wasn't on your list. Maybe it doesn't fit quite right. Or maybe, just maybe, it was something you didn't ask for, something you didn't expect, but it ends up being the gift of the year for you. It ends up being more useful or more valuable to you than anything you could have asked for. I think it's possible that the Apostle Peter felt this way about the gift of Jesus Christ. You know, when you look back in Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus explains to his disciples that he's going to die, that this is how it has to be, and he must be delivered up to the chief priests and the Pharisees, that he must die, and that he will be raised up. Peter's response to that is very striking. He says, this will never happen. I won't let it happen. Stop talking like that, Jesus. And Jesus rebukes him for it. Now, at the time... Peter didn't realize that that was the ultimate gift, the greatest gift that God could give to mankind. Peter didn't realize that in dying on the cross, Jesus was actually gifting to Peter salvation from his sins, an eternal home with the Father. He didn't realize any of that at the time. He didn't realize the value of that gift when he first saw it opened. Now, Peter's probably a lot like us. When we open up that box or that bag and find something unexpected, we're not quite sure what to do with it. Peter saw his very best friend being betrayed. He listened from a distance to that mock trial that Jesus had to endure. He might have seen, at least from arm's length or at a distance, Jesus being mocked and beaten, carrying the cross up that hill, crucified, buried in a tomb. And as Peter was trying to process all that, he was probably wondering, this isn't what I signed up for. This isn't what I asked for. This isn't the gift that I wanted. Well, that was the gift he got. Now, in hindsight, Peter's able to write this in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. 
And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. All of the wounds, all of the torture, all of the agony that Jesus had to endure that seemed so strange, so unexpected at the time, ended up proving to be the greatest gift that God could give. Peter also wrote in his second epistle, 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 13, And I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. I will also be diligent that any time after my departure you may be able to call these things to mind. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So Peter saw the full gamut of Jesus in his lifetime. Peter saw him as just a regular Joe from Galilee. Then he saw him transfigured, glorified. He even mentions that in verse 17. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. God said this as Jesus was wrapped in majestic glory. But he also saw Jesus brought very low on the cross. And finally, he saw him ascending in Acts chapter 1, glorified to return to the side of the Father, only to come back to earth once more for judgment. That was a gift that Peter didn't expect. And what a gift it was. So I wonder, what are some of the spiritual gifts? What are some of the opportunities that you have? Gifts that you weren't expecting that turn out to be actually pretty cool. Well, I'll give you a few examples from my life. These are the unexpected gifts that I have encountered in my life. Things that at the time I didn't think that they were very useful or very valuable, but they turned out in the long run to be incredibly useful and valuable. So we'll start with discipline. The gift of discipline. Proverbs chapter 12 verse 1 says, Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. This verse makes it clear that the way we open ourselves up to receive true knowledge is through correction, through discipline, through rebuke. And if we don't believe that we need discipline, what kind of people will we become? For a lot of people, discipline or correction or criticism are a lot like that pair of socks you got for Christmas that you're just not very excited about. What do you do with those socks? Just like in the movie A Christmas Story, the little boy gets his pair of socks and looks at it and tosses it behind him and moves on. Well, we do the same thing with discipline, don't we? We'll listen to the discipline. We'll, we'll nod and we'll smile and say, well, thanks for, the, thanks for the constructive criticism. I'll keep that in mind. Then we walk away and we're unchanged. We don't do anything with it. We don't see the value in it. Now certainly, it is difficult to accept discipline at the moment. For the moment, it feels painful. But we need to realize that without it, we'll never grow. We'll never improve. We'll never change. Preachers who are never criticized will go on saying the same insensitive comments or making the same grammatical errors. Employees who continually do a task incorrectly will continue to do it incorrectly as long as their supervisor allows it. We live in a society that in general avoids confrontation. We don't like telling people that they're wrong, nor do we like being told the same. 
And punishment is almost always taken personally. It's seen as an embarrassment. Fortunately, when discipline is given and taken correctly, it only hurts momentarily and eventually leads us to advancement. A great passage is found in Hebrews chapter 12. In the New Testament, in Hebrews 12, verses 7 through 11, it says this, All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, and we all agree with that, don't we? All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Now consider the analogy that he's using in the scripture. While we were children, our parents had to punish us for the foolish things that we did. We deserved every one of those disciplines. While no child giggles merrily at the thought of the rod, most children do look back with gratitude eventually. Maybe it takes 18 or 20 years to do it, but I think most children eventually look back with gratitude to their parents for everything that they did, for the consistent and fair discipline that was dispensed to them. Without discipline, I would never have the foolishness knocked out of me, so to speak. Proverbs 22 verse 15 says, Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. Now keep in mind that every child or every adult for that matter, every employee, every church member. Everybody needs to be treated as an individual, and some forms of discipline work better on some people than they do with others. So as parents, or as elders in a congregation, or as employers who have charge over a number of employees, we do need to approach each other with the understanding that we've got to discipline in a way that's effective for this person, in a way that is effective for that child. And I'm not going to discipline all of my children the exact same way because they're not the exact same person. I just had to get that out of the way there. But every punishment, whether it's big or small, has helped me become the person I am today. And I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for the unexpected gift of discipline that has come into my life. I didn't enjoy it at the time. But I have the perspective now to appreciate it. And looking back on discipline, it turned out to be one of the greatest gifts that anyone could have given me. My parents, they disciplined me. And I'm thankful for that. I had mentors and teachers over the years who disciplined me. People who called me out when I said something insensitive in a sermon. I appreciate that. Elders who've looked out for me and with all the love and care have criticized me. I appreciate that gift. Furthermore, Proverbs 15 verse 10 says, Stern discipline is for him who forsakes the way. He who hates reproof will die. Proverbs 15 32 says, He who neglects discipline despises himself, but he who listens to reproof acquires understanding. Now the next unexpected gift that I have received in life is my gray hair. And I know, I don't have as much gray hair as a lot of people, but I am starting to get the feeling I have more gray hair than most people my age. And it's not just the gray hairs either, it's the wrinkles too. But the conscious awareness of my body's ceaseless decay, its inevitable march toward physical demise, is actually one of the great gifts that I've received. A couple of things to think about here. First, 
The aging process is a reminder that I'm one day closer to being with Christ in heaven. Every gray hair that I find on my head with each new day is one gray hair closer to finally getting to see Jesus. And that life with Jesus is far better than the life on this little planet of ours. That's Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 21. And if my soul is set with my Creator, then I don't have anything to fear about growing older. Second, my gray hairs are an ever-increasing sign of maturity and experience. Now, understand, I'm not saying that everybody with gray hair is just instantly mature and experienced, that, that gray hair doesn't make you mature and experienced, but it is a superficial indication of experience. I should never want to trade veneration for youth. Proverbs 20 verse 29 says, The glory of young men is their strength, and the honor of old men is their gray hair. My gray hairs represent the many battles that I've fought. They're a visible scar of the world's persistent effects on my mind and my body and the victories that I've won in the struggle for my soul. Proverbs 16.31 A gray head is a crown of glory. It is found in the way of righteousness. Let me read that again. A gray head is a crown of glory. It is found in the way of righteousness. Those who strive for perpetual youth or who have a rebel-without-a-cause attitude toward aging are forgetting that growing up and growing old isn't a sign of failure. It's a sign of victory. Your gray head is a crown of glory. So I suppose that if I woke up on Christmas morning and found a box of Just for Men wrapped for me under the tree, it might stroke my ego a little bit. It might be good for my vanity. But the gray hairs that I see looking back at me in the mirror, that's a really great gift. An unexpected one, maybe unappreciated at the time, but it is a very valuable gift. Now, I understand that we've already talked about discipline as being a great unexpected gift, but I want to be a little more specific about an aspect of discipline, and that's criticism. The importance of accepting criticism cannot be emphasized enough, because without it, growth would be static. In any undertaking, we should be willing to avail ourselves of opinions and perspectives of those with more accumulated wisdom than ourselves. Maybe it's kind of like combining the first gift of discipline with the second gift of gray hair. Look to people with the gray hair. Look to people with experience and maturity and wisdom. Look to those kinds of people for your criticism and be open and willing to accept it. Ask them, honestly, in this area of my life, how am I doing? How am I doing with my parenting? Give me an honest take on my children and, and their behavior. Give me the outsider's perspective on how my children seem to behave in public or at the worship service or in your home. How does my marriage look? What kind of body language do you see between my wife and myself that gives some indications of how we appear in public as a couple? Give me some criticism on my job performance, on my preaching or my teaching. Look to the people who, with the experience and the wisdom and the gray hair, I say that a little tongue-in-cheek, of course, because you don't have to have gray hair to be mature and experienced, but look to those kinds of people for your criticism. 
The wise person never sets out to remodel a home without consulting a contractor first or seeking the advice of a specialist. So there's no endeavor that you can take in life that you can just successfully do without some help from somebody else. Proverbs 15.22 says, Without consultation, plans are frustrated, but with many counselors they succeed. Without a guidebook or instructions or a professional looking over our work, many of our plans become very frustrating. Even the most patient of us will grow weary of making mistake after mistake after mistake. And isn't it the same way with our spiritual lives? If consultation with a home renovation project is so essential, how much more is wise counsel to the revitalization of our souls? It is a truly foolish person who thinks that he or she can go through this troublesome life without asking others where they find strength, or how they make their marriages work, or how they raise their children so successfully, or how they serve God appropriately, how they seek His will, and especially how to stay on the path to heaven. Rather than try to accomplish all of these things on our own, we need to be willing to take the advice and the criticism of other people. Now, admittedly, there are times when all of us don't feel like getting criticized, when we're in a particularly good mood or when we've just accomplished something great. That's the least ideal time to take a beating from somebody else. And beyond that, we might have a tendency to ignore certain criticisms when we know what's coming from people. For instance, there are times when we continually make the same mistakes, knowingly make the same mistakes, out of stubbornness or simply because we've not put in the appropriate effort to remedy the situation. But if we persist in making the same error, it's very likely that others will continue to offer the same criticism. From the perspective of the one being criticized, maybe this is called nagging. Maybe it's young, cocky athletes who feel the same way when they're nagged by the coach who gives them the same advice, practice after practice. Or preachers who tend to preach consistently long sermons who feel like they're being nagged when people ask them to keep an eye on the time a little bit better. Or children feel nagged when their parents have to tell them to do such and such chore every single day. Or maybe you just feel like everybody's nagging you all the time because you still refuse to say the word nuclear correctly. You heard what I did there, right? The problem with this perspective, though, is that it places the blame in the wrong place. Chances are good that if we feel like we're being constantly nagged about the same problem, it's not the rest of the world that's at fault. It's us. And we're told very clearly in the Bible that if we resent correction, we're the ones who are acting foolishly. Go to Proverbs 9, for example. And in Proverbs chapter 9, notice verse 7. He who corrects a scoffer gets dishonor for himself, and he who reproves a wicked man gets insults for himself. Do not reprove a scoffer lest he hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he'll love you. The last unexpected gift that I want to talk about today is the unexpected gift of my enemies. Yes, even my enemies have given me gifts in my lifetime. I think we can tell a lot more about ourselves by the way that, that we treat our enemies than the way we treat our friends. Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, I say to you, love your enemies. 
and pray for those who persecute you, in order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Don't even the tax gatherers do the same? And if you greet your brothers only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore you are to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Maybe a lesson that we can learn from that text is from that very last phrase. That being perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect seems like such an unattainable thing. That I just don't feel like I could ever be perfect as my Heavenly Father is perfect. And maybe I feel like loving my enemies is just as difficult. But I suppose it's the effort that actually means something to God. God knows that we will never reach a point of self-derived moral perfection. I cannot, from myself or of my own self, I cannot, through my own efforts, make myself morally perfect as God is perfect. Any perfection I have, I derive from my relationship with God. He perfects me. He washes me of my sins. But we're supposed to strive for it. And I, I think that's the, the aspirational quality of this passage in Matthew 5 is that we're to strive for the perfection that our Heavenly Father displays. And we might never reach that, in at least, again, in that self-derived way, but we strive for it. Now, loving our enemies isn't easy either. And maybe I won't always love my enemies in a perfect way. Maybe I'll still have to fight and struggle against resentment or bitterness. Maybe, maybe I'll always carry with me some, some seed of that offense that that person committed against me. But I strive to love my enemies. I try to love my enemies. I put myself in their shoes and try to see things from their perspective of why did they do that to me? That they're a soul just like I am in need of forgiveness, in need of redemption, in need of salvation. And even if I fail at times to love them in a perfect way as the Heavenly Father shows love, I'm definitely going to show them a lot more love if I at least try than if I don't try at all. Think about that. Maybe you won't always be perfect with that love, but you're certainly going to show more love by trying to love them than by not trying at all. So why is this a gift? Why am I thankful for the unexpected gift of my enemies? It boils down to this. Loving a person who loves me in return requires nothing burdensome. But to love my enemy, or more to this radio program, to be thankful for what our enemies do for us, is the challenge that Jesus sets before me. Without our enemies, our ability to love would never be challenged. I would never know the depth of my capacity for selflessness unless I had the opportunity to truly express it to someone who does not love me in return. Loving those who love you, that phrase that Jesus uses, doesn't come with the reward, according to Jesus. What is the reward in this context is the satisfaction of a clear conscience, the peace that comes with forgiving others as we've been forgiven. Maybe the reward is knowing that you have overcome pettiness, that you've taken a big step closer to being perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. My enemies remind me that I, too, am an enemy to somebody out there. My enemies help me recall the ways that I have betrayed or disappointed others. 
My enemies magnify the good people in my life. I learn to appreciate my wife, my children, fellow Christians. I learn to appreciate them more when I see just how bad those of the world can be. I learn to stop expecting perfection from other people. My enemies give me an opportunity perfect to perfect the art of forgiveness. They help me recognize my own sinfulness and the need that I have for forgiveness through Jesus Christ. In forgiving and loving others, I come to terms with God's ultimate power and providence by giving him full control of justice. Just like Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 17 says, I don't take my own revenge. I don't take my own revenge. I leave it up to God. All I'm called to do is to love my enemies. Now, if you'd like to study this or any other religious topic further, if you have some unexpected gift that you'd like to explore in a deeper way, then please reach out to Montevista. Let's have that Bible study today. Thank you for joining us today. To hear this program again, please visit our website at montevistacoc.com. If you're in the Phoenix area, come visit us at the Montevista Church of Christ. We're located at 2202 North 40th Street. We have Bible classes for all ages each Sunday morning at 9.30 and again on Wednesday night at 7. For more information about the Montevista Church of Christ or to request a personal Bible study, please go to montevistacoc.com. Hallelujah.